Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, 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 it has been quite the week, quite the political week. I feel like I say that every every week, but this was all pretty monumental. Michael Cohen finally traipsed up to Capitol Hill, gave several hours of testimony publicly, and it was quite the display. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and some of my thoughts on that. Um, Also coming up on this edition, I have two fantastic guests, Evan McMullen, former presidential candidate. He ran as an independent conservative against Trump and Hillary last time around. I, in fact, voted for him. For those who wondered who did I actually vote for, I voted for Evan. I've gotten to know him quite well, and I sit on the board of a nonprofit organization he started called Stand Up Republic, and um, it was started after the election basically to fight against democratic, the um, the undermining of democratic norms, institutions, and ideals that are happening under the Trump administration. Um, so he's going to be here to talk about that. Uh, Evan was a former CIA operative, like clandestine operations. So that's you know, otherwise known as a spy. He did that for many years before working as an investment banker. And then he worked in Capitol Hill as a senior staffer. Um, and then he ran for president. And so he's very knowledgeable a lot of, about a lot of what's going on. And also one of the most prolific never Trump voices out there along with me and several others and there's been um, every couple months someone's always trying to write the obituary of us never trumpers and that came up again so I wanted to get him on the show and talk a little bit about the the, st- the state of those of us who are who oppose Donald Trump and uh, get his thoughts on some things that are going on in the world and uh, also I want to talk a little North Korea also um Donald Trump was in Hanoi, Vietnam last week, another big summit with Kim Jong-un. He walked away from those negotiations. He didn't get anything this time. There was no agreement, no statements of agreement on anything. It was kind of a big waste of time. But um, it, it was happening at the same time as the Cohen testimony. So most of the eyes, except for Fox News people, most of the eyes in the world were on Michael Cohen's testimony. Donald Trump didn't like that. You know, he's not the center of attention. He has a hissy fit. So <laughs> he actually tweeted a couple days ago that um, he thought it was terribly unfair and, un- and and unprecedented that Democrats had this held this hearing with Michael Cohen while the summit was going on. And maybe that contributed to the walk away. Come on, man. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he was so distracted he, he couldn't take it. He was just like, fuck this shit and, and walked off. I don't know, because he had to get to a television to find out what the hell was going on. Who knows? Donald Trump is such a weirdo. But um, I have another really good guest to talk about North Korea, an expert on the issue from the American Enterprise Institute, also known as AEI. His name is Nick Eberstadt, super smart guy. We're going to talk a little foreign policy also. So stay tuned for that. I just think it's important for my listeners and I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast and supporting it. And I just think it's important to bring experts on certain subject matters to help inform people because a lot of people who support Donald Trump are terribly uninformed because if they were informed, they wouldn't be as rabidly 
supportive of Donald Trump the way they are because they would know that he's pulling a con on them and would never tolerate it. So I'm glad I have the opportunity to help put some facts out there and bring some experts on to talk about things and help inform the public. Spread the word, spread truth and facts because that's what we're we're all about. At least that's what we need to be. Whoever knew. We're going to talk a little bit about that too with Evan. He has an interesting take on it all and um, I asked him, what are some of the things that keep him up at night about the Donald Trump presidency? So stay tuned to hear what, what he says about that. Um, I know it keeps me up at night, but I don't want to spoil it. So <laughs> stay tuned and uh, you'll hear from Evan and Nick Eberstadt. So um, speaking of things that keep me up at night, I, I don't know. Did anybody else see Donald Trump's unhinged, hysterical CPAC speech? It was on Saturday. Most of us have real lives, I know. Um, I actually didn't even realize that he was showing up. Oh, well, first let me explain what CPAC is. I I assume that everyone knows. So CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Committee, and it's a convention that goes on every year. It's a big yearly event, a yearly gathering of conservatives. And all the big-name conservatives come in. It's almost like a mini-convention. And they come in and they give these rousing speeches and they have panel discussions about all kinds of subjects that conservatives care about. And it used to be a, an event that I looked forward to because as a conservative, it was great for us to kind of have this confab. And I still have friends to this day that I met years ago at CPAC conferences. But the last couple of years since Matt Schlapp took over, it's turned into a circus. It's just turned into a... I mean, it's a circus. A couple years ago, he tried to invite that Milo Yiannopoulos jerk. That guy is like a total um, Holocaust denier jerk. Um, just And then we found out that he was engaged in some inappropriate behavior. He was justifying pedophilia, basically. Yeah, this, the, this guy, he used to work for Breitbart, part of that ilk. And Matt Schlapp thought that was someone we should bring to CPAC. What? You know, it, it, and it just, this year they brought those freaking minstrels, step and fetch it minstrels, diamond and silk, who I just can't stand. I think that they are an embarrassment. They are every bad stereotype of a, of ghetto black women and to see white conservatives lifting them up and elevating them as if they are representative of, of black America. <sighs> It infuriates me. And they treat these people like rock stars. They're a bunch of grifters, absolute grifters. So I have no patience for it. And um, I, so I happened to, I, I just kind of turned off CPAC. I didn't even want to really watch it because I just can't stomach it anymore because it's turned into the Donald Trump, Jim Jones um, convention. I mean, the Kool-Aid drinking is ridiculous. So on Saturday, I happened to be out running, out and about running errands. I had to take my kitty Tiki to the vet. No, nothing, nothing wrong. Just routine blood work for him as he is 12. And I was so I was out and about with my mom. And I, I, I'm, I incessantly listen to cable news, even in the car. Yes, because even if I if I unplug for a couple hours, some kind of hell breaks loose. And then I'm like, how did I miss this? So I turn the, the, the CNN on in my car and I hear Donald Trump. I'm like, oh, shit, that's right. He's probably speaking at CPAC. Yep, I'm right. He's speaking at CPAC. Okay. I'm going in and out of stores and running errands. Two hours go by and I'm like, 
he's still going. My mom's like the guy, he's still going. And I, I, it was every portion of it that I heard was more unhinged than, than the next. I mean, he was on extra crazy pills on Saturday. And I would imagine it's because he had a pretty shitty week between the embarrassment in North Korea and then the bigger embarrassment of, of Michael Cohen calling him a liar, a cheat, and a con man, and a racist during his testimony. Wasn't a great week, so he needed to go and and um, give his get his fill to recharge in front of his minions who were clapping like seals at some of the most outrageous things that he said. And all I'm going to say is God bless the fact checkers and the, the journalists that have to sit there through those speeches and actually either blog them or fact check them in real time, like Daniel Dale, uh, who I've mentioned before, who's the most prolific Trump fact checker out there. That one was a doozy. Oh my goodness gracious. And just, I talked about it on CNN over the weekend. You guys can, can look it up because I, I said that it was like, it was a disgraceful display of these Republicans clapping at some of the stuff Trump was talking about, like, like seals. It was awful, awful. So there, there was, there was that. But um, speaking of grifters and, and just embarrassment. So we'll talk a little bit about the Cohen testimony. Um, unless you were under a rock, you didn't know, but Michael Cohen's for former lawyer and personal fixer of over a decade, Michael Cohen testified publicly in front of Congress. Now he testified three times last week. Two of them were behind closed doors for the intelligence committees and then one for the oversight committee, which was public. It was a despicable display by the Republicans on that committee. Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and a couple of others, yahoos on that committee, were just intellectually lazy, completely incurious. They didn't care at all about the potential wrongdoing that Michael Cohen brought up about Donald Trump. Now, I get it. Michael Cohen was convicted of lying. He's going to prison. But he is a broken man. Anyone looking at Michael Cohen can see that. And I got to tell you, Michael Cohen was one of the biggest jerk offs during the during the campaign. Like he was arrogant. He was, you know, an attack dog for Trump. And so he I, I couldn't stand him. I really couldn't. Um, there was a famous exchange between him and Brianna Keeler during the election where Brianna, CNN anchor, she was asking him about polling data, about things. And, um, and, and, you know, he was like, well, who says who? And she was like, everyone. And he was like, says who? It turned into a, it turned into a meme. So everybody thinks of when they think of Michael Cohen, they think of that says who, you know, he's, he's a quintessential New Yorker in some ways, especially his accent. But, um, but I saw a broken man on Wednesday last week and uh, I almost felt sorry for him. Actually, I, I actually had some compassion for him because, well, only Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and those idiot Republicans could, could be possibly more obnoxious than some of the Trump people and make Michael Cohen into a sympathetic figure, for goodness sakes. So they just kept going on and on and berating him about being a liar and how he's going to jail and he's a felon now. And so we shouldn't believe anything he says. Uh, Okay, we get it. And he admitted it. He's like, look, I know I screwed up. I know I've I've lied about things. I'm not proud of that. I'm paying the ultimate price. I'm going to freaking prison. 
So that that line of questioning got very old by the third, fourth, fifth, sixth Republican going down the same line of questioning. It was like, oh, you couldn't come up with anything else? How about you ask him some questions about some of the shit that Donald Trump has been into? How about that? About his unscrupulous business practices, about him cheating on his taxes, about his racist behavior toward people of color. Um, Russians, I mean, like, you're not interested in any of it? None of it? No, they weren't. It was a disgraceful display. And I, I just thought, I found Michael Cohen to be, let me take that back, one Republican, Justin Amash, who leans more libertarian, from Michigan, he actually had an insightful line of questioning. And he asked one of the most poignant questions of the entire hearing. He asked Michael Cohen, what truth is Donald Trump most afraid of? What truth does he fear the most? And it, it kind of stunned Michael Cohen. Now, I'm not sure if he was stunned because he, he didn't expect the question or he just kind of, you know, it'd been a long day or there were so many things that Donald Trump was afraid of being exposed that he just couldn't process it all at one time. Either way, it was a pretty poignant moment because it goes to the heart of what motivates Trump, why he does some of the things he does that are just so out in left field, you know, why? And um, Michael Cohen was like, man, that's a tough question, but he never answered it. So I wondered, you know, there were still some points where he almost, where he, well, what gave him credibility, in my opinion, was he didn't just pile on Trump. Yes, he called him a cheat and a racist and all that. And okay, well, that's not news. When it came to direct collusion with the Russians or things like that, he said that he didn't he didn't witness any of that. He could have just said, yeah, he was if it was just a pile on. But he was he he, I don't want to say defended Trump, but he didn't in areas where people were really hoping for a smoking gun. He didn't provide it. Now, he did come with receipts. He did talk about how Trump paid him back thirty five thousand dollars at a time for the Stormy Daniels Um uh, incident, major campaign finance violation, and Trump lied. Remember, there's that B-roll we see constantly of him on Air Force One being asked about the Stormy Daniels payment, and he goes, I don't know anything about that. Ask my attorney. Well, that's bullshit. He did know. He knew all about it. Him and Alan Weisselberg, who was the CFO for 40 years, the Trump organization, they all knew about it. They all cooked up a scheme, and Michael Cohen's the only one going to jail for it as of today. Who knows what happens in the future, but that was pretty interesting. He bought, brought copies of those checks signed by, by Donald Trump while he was president to conceal the fact that the payments were made for the Stormy Daniels cover-up. Yeah, that, we, that'd been report, that had been reported, and Michael Cohen backed that up. So, so we'll see. You know, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, he's just doing this because he wants to get a reduction in sentence. You know, it's called Rule 35, where you can, even after you've been convicted and after you've been sentenced, if you're still cooperating in an ongoing investigation, there's still an opportunity to reduce your sentence. That's true. But what's important, and I've said this before, and um, last week I talked about this with Joey Jackson, you can't just go making shit up. You can't just go and say a bunch of things and they go, okay, we're going to reduce your sentence. No, they have to be credible and corroborated. So that was another nonsense line of questioning from Republicans trying to attack Michael Cohen. I mean, he, that's low-hanging fruit. 
yeah, he was a pretty shitty guy for a long time. But um, clearly he's trying to clear his conscience. He's trying to do the right thing. He's he's not happy with how Donald Trump is behaving or what he's doing to this country. And there was another part of the of the hearing where he chastised those Republicans who were so steadfastly defending blind loyalty to Donald Trump. And he basically told them, (laughs) all right, you want to continue to be blindly loyal to him? That's at your own risk. Because look where it got me. Amen to that. But they'll learn. Um, They'll learn. So pretty compelling stuff. Uh, Cohen's not done. Actually, he's testifying again this week on the 6th. So today, I think. Uh, but again, that's behind closed doors, so we won't get to to hear it directly. Only whatever's leaked out of the out of the hearing room. Uh, but the fact that one of the biggest revelations was that there are other multiple investigations going on, and Trump is looks like he's the subject of them. I've been saying for some time now that the Southern District of New York case—that's who prosecuted Cohen—that what they're doing there poses a greater threat to Trump than the Mueller investigation because the Southern district is looking into Trump's businesses, his business practices, um, and, and those kinds of things. And Trump is a dirty businessman. He has been for years. So karma's a bitch and it will catch up with you. So what pay attention to what's going on at the Southern district. Mueller's dealing with Russia and that's bad too. But what they, you know, Al Capone didn't go to prison for murder. He got convicted of tax evasion. So, so that's that. The, the Cohen saga continues. Matter of fact, he's got a, one of his defense attorneys also represents Jesse Smollett. He got himself a big, big time defense attorney. And um, I just thought that was an interesting tidbit intersection of culture and politics there. Oh, let's see what else. Um, well, I, I told you we have um, Evan McMullen coming up and Nick Eberstadt, who is a expert on North Korea. So we'll talk North Korea with him. Um, Democrats. Oh, yeah. So the Democrats, now that they're, you know, that everyone's all riled up after the Cohen hearings and he revealed some interesting, interest, interesting information. They have opened up um, several investigations now congressionally. I just hope that Democrats don't overstep on this. I mean, I understand Republicans relinquished their responsibility for oversight for two years while they controlled the House under Trump. But I know everyone's curious. They, you know, they're itching to impeach Donald Trump, but we've got to be very careful about that. The, the case needs to be rock solid because Trump and, and the Republicans, they're going to fight back like hell and just say they want to overturn a democratically elected president and it's just not good. Impeachment is just never good for a country. So they're looking to get documents and testimony from 81 Trump associates, 81, including his kids. Good luck with that. Donald Trump has hired Emmett Flood, who is a notorious attorney, and he knows how to delay things and Um, he knows this town, so he's, he's no pushover. So that's going to be a fight. That's going to be a fight for sure. Speaking of Trump's kids, um, Ivanka Trump got caught in a lie. Another big story last week. 
this um we kind of knew this already but and i talked about this on past episodes of honestly speaking back in the fall about jared kushner i've been very vocal from day one about jared kushner and ivanka trump having no freaking business being in the white house it's nepotism at its worst they're not qualified for those jobs and we have nepotism laws for a reason I don't give a shit if they relinquish their salary and they're doing it for free. No, they're not doing it for free. They're doing it because they're for access. Ivanka Trump's been, Trump's been getting all kinds of patents and things for her potential products. Jared Kushner was in debt up the wazoo with family business and the property on 666 Fifth Avenue in New York that was draining money from their from their business, their real estate business. And he was soliciting all kinds of foreign foreign countries that could bail him out it was just a mess he had to he had to amend his his uh, national security his security clearance application it's called a sf 80 something i forget what it's called but it's a it's a form and he had to amend it multiple times because he left off a hundred one hundred contacts with foreign entities whether it was governments people how, how the fuck do you leave off a hundred things you're supposed to be some kind of wonderkin, some boy wonder, and you can't remember foreign contacts that you've had? Come on, get the hell out of here. But our, there's a whole process to get a security clearance. And when you get a security clearance, that means that you have access to some of the most sensitive information with the government. You're supposed to be trustworthy. You go through a whole investigation. Professionals, they screen you to make sure that you have the integrity to, to have that kind of access, that you're not vulnerable to compromise or blackmail. My husband is a federal law enforcement officer. He goes through this security clearance. They go all the way back to like junior high school. If you got like a parking ticket when you were 16 and you're not forthcoming about it, they'll call you on it. Like these security clearance investigations are no joke. And they're done by professionals. Jared Kushner was rejected for a security clearance. They were like, no way in hell. Well, guess what? Daddy Trump came along and said, too bad. I want him to have a security clearance. Give it to him. He's got that power as president and he's abusing it. Surprise, surprise. So it's a huge story. You know, why? And what did what the hell did Jared Kushner have access to? You know, I talked about his relationship with the Saudis in a past episode and his close relationship with MBS. He's basically conducting his own foreign policy outside the confines of our National Security Council and our regular our regular secu- uh, national security apparatus. He was like texting on WhatsApp with the damn Saudi Arabian prince. What are you doing? He also tried to establish a back channel with the Russians. Yes, that's open source information to Google it. So Kushner's bad news. I, I personally think he's a national security threat. And um, I asked Evan McMullen about that since he was a CIA guy. We can find out what he had to say about that. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, Roger Stone's in trouble again. Well, he's a piece of shit, so um, I I can't wait for the day that he finally goes behind bars. He keeps violating the judge's orders. Um, there was a partial gag order on him because he was an idiot and put up some kind of Instagram photo with a like a crosshair next to the judge's picture. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like. I don't know. It's just arrogance, stupidity. I, I don't know. But um, he got reprimanded for that. And she basically told him, you're like half a breath away from jail. Don't do it again. And he did some other stuff, pushing the envelope, complaining about the, the investigation and his treatment. So I wouldn't be surprised if Roger Stone is jailed 
the same way Manafort was. Um, this judge doesn't play around. So keep an eye on that. Lastly, before we get to the interviews, is the national emergency. This is something that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. Donald Trump declaring this fake national emergency to get money for the wall because Congress will not approve it. And I've been very vocal also about that. Um, And I'm glad to see that there are more Republicans finally crawling out from their cowardly caves to speak up against what Trump is trying to do here. You know, we can argue over public policy differences and, you know, they can all of a sudden say, well, make excuses for tariffs or for, for tanking trade deals or for how Trump behaves with a foreign leader. Okay, whatever. But when it starts coming down to constitutional things that affect the constitution, you damn well better speak up because nothing else matters. When you start compromising the constitution, Nothing else matters after that. Disappointingly, only 13 Republicans had the balls to vote for the for the legislation or the resolution condemning this national emergency declaration. All the Democrats voted against it. Well, voted against the declaration and only 13 Republicans joined them. That's like a hundred and. 70 something Republicans voted for it. Like they were okay with Donald Trump abusing this power. Unbelievable. So kudos for those Republicans that had some balls to stand up for the constitution. And now it's over going to be over at the Senate. I don't know when the vote is. It might be this week, but it looks like Mitch McConnell has admitted it's going to go. It's, it's going to pass the vote to block the declaration will pass the Senate. At least four Republicans, as of right now, have publicly said they will not vote for it. So, well, I guess to vote for, I don't mean to confuse you. They will, they're going to vote for the declaration that blocks the national emergency. So, ultimately, that means it goes down. However, Donald Trump can veto it, and he's already said he would. So, it will go to his desk, he'll veto it. Will there be enough votes to override the veto in both houses? You need two thirds. You need two thirds in the House, two thirds in the Senate to override a veto. In all the vetoes that have ever happened, uh, only less than 10% in the entire history of the veto have ever been overridden by Congress. So it's very rare. But this is a constitutional issue. And I'm going to name who those Republicans are that have come out publicly and said, yeah, we're not cool with this and we're not going to um, we're not going to be in favor of Donald Trump doing it. And that's Markowski, Velasca, Collins of Maine, Rand Paul and Tillis, of North Carolina. So they're going to block it. Now, there's a bunch of others who are on the fence and that I'm very curious to see now that they have some cover how they're going to vote because that happens a lot, too. Sometimes members will, they'll stay uncommitted until they find out enough votes can come up to either save it or or sink it, and then they hide behind that. Uh, I've seen it done many times in the House. The Senate does it too. So who's teetering? Who's like, well, we don't agree with it, but we haven't made a decision yet? Lamar Alexander, Cory Gardner, Mike Lee, Mr. Big Shot uh, constitutional guy. Let's uh, Mike Lee better not 
be in support of this this national emergency. Inhofe, Langford, Portman, Mitt Romney's another one. He he better freaking vote the right way. Come on, Mitt. You know better. What are you waiting for? Marco Rubio too. All you guys are making these statements about you're concerned about the constitutionality of it. Well, then commit to it and say, damn it, we're not going to allow the president to do this. Period. I just don't get the wishy-washiness. I can't take it. Same thing for Ben Sass. I like Senator Sass, but he needs, you know, come out now, Sass, and be unequivocal about this. So those are so keep an eye on those Republicans and um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But it looks like we're going to there's going to be a rebuke unless Donald Trump shifts gears and tries some other scheme. So maybe he'll actually be held accountable for something. Hallelujah to that. Stay tuned. There was an interesting conversation I had on CNN over the weekend that prompted me to decide that I wanted a very specific guest on to talk about the subject of Never Trump. And that would be uh, Evan McMullen. Some of you may have heard about him. He did run for president in 2016 as an independent conservative candidate, and I actually voted for him. So those of you who have followed me on Twitter know that I was very supportive of Evan's efforts because under no circumstances was I ever voting for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. But uh, Evan was more than just that. He's a former CIA clandestine operations officer. Um, he was a senior congressional staffer for the Foreign Affairs Committee and for the GOP conference. And he's also the co-founder of an organization called Stand Up Republic that he co-founded with his vice presidential running mate, Mindy Finn. And I also am a founding board member of it. So I wanted to bring Evan on to talk a little bit about what's going on, but also to talk about the fact that Never Trump is here to stay. (laughs) Evan, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Great to be with you, Tara. Thank you. <laughs> so um, last week, uh, Liz Mayer, who I, I don't have any issues with, but she wrote it an op-ed for the New York Times, and it was in response to Bill Weld running for announcing that he's going to run for president under the Republican uh, moniker. And I mean, you know, Bill Weld, God bless him, he's a non-factor. But she was talking about the fact that uh, she was a never Trumper. She did not support Trump, but how so the, the never Trump movement is quote, the equivalent of a doomed exotic species attracting a lot of stares, but no longer playing much of a role in the actual biosphere. Tell me why she's wrong. Well, you know, I always, I'm always fascinated. It seems that every three to six months, there's a new uh, you know, round of, of this that never Trump is dead and, and it's gone because, you know, people are disappointed to see people who have opposed Trump in the past change their behavior and, and change their message when it, it becomes too hard to continue opposing him. I speak of, you know, people on the right and people, uh, you know, among Republicans. Right. And so I, under, I understand that to some degree, but um, but it is interesting that this, this story sort of resurfaces or this line resurfaces every three to six months. And, you know, it will resurface again three to six months from now. <laughs> but in, re- in, in reality, never Trump, which we should talk about sort of what is that actually. Right. But yeah. the, way, the way I think of it is, is simply Republicans or conservatives who are opposed to the president. Um, boy, you know, they've never been stronger than they are now. And I think the midterms really proved the, their importance electorally, which is, 
you know, which is what matters most. And so you're talking about in, in 2018, you know, the Democrats taking over 30 seats that Trump had won in 2016. And about a third of those were seats that Trump won by large margins. That's like right. New York 22, where Trump won in 2016 by 16 points. Well, the Democrat won in 2018 by 0.6 points. It was a close race. And so Republicans who are opposed to Trump and conservatives who are opposed to Trump who stay home or come out and actually vote for the Democrat, you know, those are the those are the decisive votes. You know, there, there are so many other districts like that in Oklahoma, South Carolina, others in New York, Michigan, Virginia, even Utah. Right. You know, where Ben McAdams, Ben McAdams won a district that Trump had won uh, by 0.2 percentage points. And so, you know, people look at Never Trump and they say, oh, you're small. There, there aren't many of you. You can't control the Republican Party. Therefore, you don't matter. You know, the first part of that is right. We are a, a small minority. I'm sad to say I wish we were large enough to right, you know, you and pull me both. more Republicans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Away from Trump. But but what we are able to do is is help decide elections across the country. And and that's what we did in in 2018. Uh, the Democrats took the House with the largest margin uh, that they've had in 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 that in that sense and taking the House since uh you know, in in several decades, I right? Think, since the time of, of Nixon, after his after That's his right, since uh, the 70s. Uh, departure from office, mm-hmm. so I think it's hard it's hard to say that never Trump is dead when you have figures and election results like that. That's right, and I I've said the same thing uh, when I was on CNN. I'm like, you know, they've been trying to write our obituary since the day of the election, and um, it's it's just not. It's not accurate for all of the reasons that you just enumerated. Uh, but she also used an example of, of people who you, you alluded to this a little bit, too, but I'm going to name some names. People who were never Trump that vehemently opposed Donald Trump. Uh, let's say hmm, Lindsey Graham being one of them um, and others right. who called Trump for exactly what he was until he got into power. And then all of a sudden they had a, a, a change of heart. Now he's, you know, they're all about his agenda, things that are just constitutionally problematic. Um, but they, the way they justify it, she names Eric Erickson as another one. Now, Eric was a prolific never Trump guy. I mean, he, he took on great financial uh, loss by by staking that position and now he's come around same thing with glenn beck he was another one he was a never trump guy and now he's all on board he's merged with mark levin it just seems to me like some of these people they know deep down inside most of them know deep down inside that donald trump is a cancer on our democracy and and on the conservative movement but yet for financial reasons or personal preservation they've decided to sell out I, i just flat out and I just don't see any other explanation for it because they know good and hell damn well that Donald Trump is a problem and that we would never put up with what he's doing if it were a Democrat. Well, look, I, you know, I, I think your analysis is correct. And Lindsey Graham, I think, had a, a very, uh, you know, illuminating quote the other day. Uh, I think it was in the New York Times piece on him about his transition from being opposed to Trump to supporting him. And he said something to the effect of, Look, if you don't want to get reelected as a member of Congress or the Senate, then then you're in the wrong business. And that's right. Boy, I thought, isn't isn't that a twisted way to think of it? You know, I you know, I I I miss the old Lindsey Graham quite a bit. Um, 
but but I got to tell you that you know if if all you care about if you think your highest calling is to be reelected, well then then you're in the wrong business. It's exactly <laughs> the opposite of that. So that's right. You know, I, I was. I was disappointed to see that, but you know, Tara, I think that there's a lot of you know misunderstanding and misconception about what Never Trump is, and mm-hmm. it sort of leads us to leads a lot of people to say, okay, well, if you know this commentator or this politician is no longer opposed to Trump, well, then therefore, no, Never Trump is dead. That's just that's not the way. That's that's not accurate. What, what Never Trump is to me, when we talk about conservatives and Republicans again who are opposed to the president. Uh, the real never Trumpers are the voters. It's not me. It's not you. It's mm-hmm. not you know Lindsey Graham or or anybody else. It's the voters. That's what matters. And the voters they don't have an audience to maintain. They're not trying to get reelect reelected. They're just trying to do uh, what's best for the country. And they're you know they may be a minority of Republicans and conservatives out there. That's certainly true. Who are opposed to the president. But they are uh, they are large enough in number to decide the direction of, of this country, or at least who controls the two chambers in, in Congress. And ultimately, I think who will control the White House in 2020. What do you say to the people like Eric Erickson who say, look, I still think he's a horrible guy. He's problematic in a lot of ways. He's immoral. He lacks empathy. He's a narcissist. But he's done some things we like. He's pro-life. He's helped us with pro-life stuff. He's cut regulations. He's got we've got a booming economy, the judicial appointments. You know what? I'm willing to cast all those other problems aside with him because we're getting what we want. What do you say to that? Well, I have my, my I have my, my own view. response, but I'll let. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. I want to hear. But it. I want to hear what your response is. Yeah. Well. Well. Look. Like I. I, I don't. I have a hard time taking that at face value, to be honest, because look. You, you can support if you're a conservative and you're a Republican and the president is advancing, uh, you know, uh, policy initiatives that, you know, that the, that the House and Senate Republicans and that other Republicans have long uh, aspired to or, or tried to advance. You know, you can support that while at the same time recognizing that the president is dangerous to our country. He's doing a lot of damage to our country. He, you know, came to power with the support of a foreign adversary. And you can see all that and say that's dangerous, and I opposed it. I am opposed to that, and I'm opposed to him because those things are so fundamental to who he is. While at the same time saying, "Look, I support some of these policies." Now, everything that Trump does isn't consistent, by the way, with you know traditional Republican policies, or even you know, uh, or even any policies that Republicans should even consider you know adopting. For example. The president has no concern, apparently, about the national debt. That's Our right. national debt is growing. The deficit, annual deficits are about a trillion dollars a year. No, no Republican, you know, very few Republican leaders seem to care about that. The president doesn't care about that. You know, it used to be one of our military leaders said not, not so long ago that um, – that our national debt was the largest, you know, the largest threat facing our country. And now yep. it seems that the, the Republican Party under Trump's leadership doesn't care at all about that. So that's you know, how the Tea Party started. That's like. how that's yeah. how the Tea Party started. A lot of people forget the Tea Party started uh, with tax enough already. They were concerned about the fiscal irresponsibility and growing entitlements, the growing debt and deficit. And with Barack Obama's financial uh, policies and economic policies, that that was going to do, be something that bankrupted this country and 
just I mean, that was only 10 short years ago. Look at where we are now. The the, the words, the, 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 the deficit and, and deficits and all of that, that doesn't even come out of Republicans' mouths anymore. But what happened to fiscal responsibility? That was like one of the main tenets of conservative Republicans, of conservative Republicans. And now, no, apparently it's all all right. <laughs> Go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I remember when I was still working in the House and the president, uh, the, the candidate at the time, Trump, came to to visit House Republican leaders, and you know, they they pushed him to incorporate fiscal responsibility into his campaign message, and his response was, uh, "Look, I'm I'm running for office now. I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, talk to me after the election, and maybe I'll think about it." Um, but this is the thing. I mean, he even he knows. This is why you know this is one of the problems with Trump. I think you know he understands that. All of this uh, spending financed by debt on the country and debt put on future generations isn't isn't responsible. But that's not his concern. Actually, his concern is his ability to to maintain his popularity to win elections. That's right. Also, probably to 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 block you know conviction in the case that he's impeached, and that's what he cares about <laughs> more than anything else. Of course, another example I'm sure you were going to name uh, of things that Donald Trump does that are completely against Republican orthodoxy are tariffs. Since when right. did you know the Republican Party become the party of of tariffs? <laughs> what and 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 killing international trade deals. That is another right. thing that they've kind of just sunken back, you know, slinked away and just accepted. Um, and it's hurting our, it's hurting our country. It's hurting their constituents in places like Iowa and Michigan and Wisconsin places he needs to win. And, 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 and in fact, in order to, you know, in order to blunt the negative effects of that, he's having to to subsidize even more heavily those who are harmed by it, which also isn't, you know, isn't typically where the Republican Party would be. And, and so and there are many other examples. Yeah. I mean, it certainly look at look at NATO and all our allies oh. who, you know, after 9-11 came to our defense and, you know, joined with us in the fight in the in the war on terror. I mean, President Trump now try, works to to weaken those relationships and to fracture those alliances that have kept the peace. And, and look, I'm, I'm not one that thinks those alliances can't be improved. We, we certainly should put more pressure on uh, the Europeans to increase their defense spending. I think that's absolutely true. Um, but that's something that, you know, we've been talking about for a while and the president has adopted that, but he's adopted it in a way that I think is intended actually to, um, to harm those alliances, not to strengthen them. And the proof is sort of in the pudding when you see that these countries are increasing their contributions to their or their own spending on defense, and Trump continues to rail against them as though they're not actually increasing their defense spending. And so it just shows you that it's, he's not really concerned with strengthening those alliances that, that protect our national security. He really is trying to break them apart, I think, because he favors a new kind of alliance with um, countries and leaders who aren't committed to our ideals or democracy or freedom at all. No, they're committed to flattering him. And that's consistent with his entire brand, his entire life and the way he's done business. And he's doing the exact same thing the, by the, the way he's governing, if you want to call it that. Um, and that's, uh, the, the, you know, undermining those strategic alliances is, is concerning on a number of levels, but it's kind of a good transition into an area of expertise for you um, as a former in, intelligence officer in, with the CIA. Um, 
you have to be looking at what's going on with Trump's relationship with Russia. Um, you know, NATO was created in order to protect Europe from Russian aggression. So juxtapose that um, undermining of the relationship with NATO and, and Trump cozying up with Russia it makes it even more concerning. Um, but, in you know, with your expertise in that area, what a how do you feel as an intelligence former intelligence officer when you hear Trump mm-hmm. say that he believes dictators and enemies of our country over our own intelligence service services? And what keeps you up at night the most so far of what you've seen with Trump's actions and words? Well, it's, it's really the assault on, on truth. It's the constant lies, the, the, the constant disinformation. I mean, look, I'll tell you, Tara, I've had conversations with, uh, with a, a handful of friends over the last couple of weeks as there's been a lot of you know, Russia news breaking and sort of Trump-Russia investigation, special counsel news breaking about, for example, Paul Manafort providing targeting data to uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, a Russian agent, and, uh, you know, other contacts between Americans associated with Trump and WikiLeaks and Cohen talking about how Trump knew ahead of time about the WikiLeaks uh, email dumps and all of that. Oh, um, that's fake news, you know, Evan. Fake news. Yeah, it's it's a witch right, hunt. Exactly. <laughs> but this is this is what I'm hearing from friends who are, you know, senior Republican operatives who are are actually no fans of Trump, who who are opposed to Trump, who didn't vote for Trump, actually. And they tell me, I, you know, from them, I'm hearing some things which are, look, I've just stopped listening to the news mm. because. I, I don't I don't trust the media to be accurate messengers of uh, news on these issues. And I just feel like they're attacking Trump gratuitously or because of some bias. And so and that's hard for me. Because, yeah, me too. You know, although I, I do I do think that there there is bias, liberal bias in the mainstream media. Sure. I do think that's a real thing. Also, the independent press is critical to holding government accountable. And so, you know, while we need to sort of do both, right, we need to make sure that we, you know, speak out when we think there is bias in the media one way or another where it's not, you know, overtly labeled. Um, But we also have to hold uh, our leaders accountable and we can't do it really without the press. And so, you know, my my biggest concern going back to your question really is that, you know, there are people who, you know, again, are not supportive of Trump, but who are turning off in terms of their um, efforts to ascertain the truth and understand what's actually happening with investigations surrounding the president, because it's too hard to figure out what the truth is, given Trump's, you know, disinformation and the, what they see on Fox News and which is a whole other topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's one thing I'm really worried about. And there's one more thing, but I'll pause there in case you want to react to that. Yeah, um, uh, that's that's by design. I mean, Donald Trump may be a dotard on a lot of the things, but he is a master manipulator. He understands how to brand and market things. That's how he's been able to pull off his con for so long. And he knew early on that by by undermining the press, which is, like you said, there to hold public officials accountable and to assault and and to to do a full-on assault on the truth and muddying what that is where people can't decide what is and what isn't true or or what isn't a fact, that completely inoculates him from any accountability. 
and he's succeeding. He's succeeding. That's right. And I, that I agree with you is one of the scariest, most concerning things about what I've seen go on. People who we, who I've known for a long time have become, who I thought were reasonable people have become rabid cultists and just incapable of hearing anything that's actual fact because it's all about it, it, it's the strangest thing it's just like they they defend him almost as if it's a personal affront to them it's a very strange psychology but it is undermining our country right. in the long term and that's one of the reasons why i know for me that um be, being a part of the the trump skeptic never trump movement is so important because we have to continue to be that conscience if we're not who will be right and and i hope that more people will join us and and the good news is that you know most americans uh see it the way we do or similarly they recognize the threat that donald trump poses to uh to liberty in america that's the liberty and justice in america and that's that's something that i think that a, a majority of americans are united in which is exciting and one of the elements of our work at Stand Up Republic that I'm so excited about is that we have Republicans, Democrats, Independents, uh, conservatives, and liberals all united around, you know, ideas like the separation of powers and mm-hmm. you know the independence of law enforcement and the importance of an independent press and you know the importance of truth. Imagine that we have to fight for even that these days. But um, but the, the the good news is that a majority of Americans, I think, are committed to those things and are fighting back. And I think, you know, this whole situation has been a giant civics lesson for the entire country. That's for sure. And, and I and I'm and I am optimistic, Tara. I'll tell you, as bad as things are, and I think they're going to get worse before they get better. But you know, I think we're going to be stronger for this on the other side. I, I think that we'll have learned some real important lessons about how we need to actively, proactively on the civic level, defend liberty uh, every day in America if we expect it to survive here. Well, this is certainly one of the biggest tests of the American experiment. And we've survived other things. We survived a civil war, for goodness sakes. I think we can survive Donald Trump. But I often say the, a quote from, <laughs> from John Adams where he says, every democracy eventually commits suicide. <laughs> And I, and I always say right. we're like we've got like the the, the razor to the jugular. OK, it, we're, we're kind of close right yeah. now. So we need to back away. Put right. the put the razor blade down, you know, put, put the it. Razor that's down. right. And exactly. back away, please. Um, we've before, got too much to live. For. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we're still the greatest country in the world. We're not going to let this bastard ruin the great, you know, how great America is and still will continue to be. We don't need him to to save Amen. America from anything. Um, speaking of, and we're going to talk a little bit about what Stand Up Republic does. We just had a, our annual conference, and I think it's important for people to hear yeah. about that. But uh, I, I, we, we were bringing up the the assault on truth and and the press. There is a big story, a long form story in the New Yorker. That just came out and talking about Trump's relationship with Fox News and just how the channel has really become a propaganda channel and how Donald Trump obsesses over watching shows like Fox and Friends and the access that he gives people like Sean Hannity. What stood out to you about that story? I mean, I was just it's almost like I it's like everything we already knew, but it was just confirmed right there in print. 
Yeah, it really was. It, it is an incredible story, and I, I reckon it's, it's a outrageous. long one. It's yeah, New York. It's a New Yorker piece, so you know it's going to be long. Yeah, but, but I, it's I worth really it. recommend that ev- yep. everyone take sit down, print it out if you have to, sit down and consume the whole thing because it's full of uh, important details. Look, you know, there are a few things that really stood out to me. Uh, one of them was that Fox uh, Fox had the the Stormy Daniels story and knew about the illegal payments uh, by Trump to, to Stormy Daniels, the, the the hush money payments to her, and they sat on the story. Yep. They had it and they killed it. Yep. And and that right there, I think, shows you that. And you know, they did it not for not just because there was some profit incentive, not just because the audience wouldn't like that. They did it because specifically because they wanted the president to win, which is, I mean, really that's when you, you sort of end up being, you know, you're no longer, you're no longer doing journalism. You, you're, you actually become in the case that, you know, the, the, the individual is elected, you become, you know, state television. That's and, right. And that's what we have here. And so that concerned me. Uh, you know, another one uh, was, um, you know, discussion about how uh, the Fox News will will go to far right websites oh, to look yes. to see what what they're reporting on, and then and then decide from there um, what their you know what they'll what their programming will be, what they'll discuss during the day, and and that's very concerning to me. You know, I mean, there, there's just so much there. Um, oh, I know something you know, else that, that probably goes, stood out was yeah. was uh, Trump abusing his presidential powers to um, to seek retribution against news organizations that he doesn't like, like mine organization, CNN, the CNN AT&T merger, which wa- which has been taken to court. And um, AT&T, they won the merger. It was approved. But Trump, tr- he directed Gary Cohn to create as much, you know, as a much of a problem for that merger as possible because he doesn't like CNN because he's got he's got a, you know, be in his bonnet against Jeff Zucker. And for those who don't know the relationship, Jeff Zucker worked for NBC when The Apprentice was created. Jeff Zucker, who is the head of CNN, greenlit The Apprentice and jump started Trump's career back when he was fledgling. Um, after his several bankruptcies and his and his business was hurting, Jeff Zucker, Trump, like it's like a weird thing. A lot of people don't realize it's like you can like it's Jeff's fault that that Trump is where he is because the Apprentice is what gave Trump, what put Trump in everybody's household uh, every week, and uh, you're fired. It became a cultural phenomenon, and. Because Jeff and, and CNN was holding Trump accountable and not going the route of Fox News and becoming uh, propaganda TV, Donald Trump has set his sights on trying to destroy CNN, and that story talks about how. Right, and not just CNN, but also to block competition right. from the right. Sinclair. From, from Fox. So yep, the Sinclair yeah, deal. Sinclair, exactly. Yep. So, so yeah, that's hi- I mean, that's highly troubling, uh, obviously, and and that's how we en- we start to move away from having a free and independent press. Is you know through the a president, in this case President Trump, using regulatory powers to punish uh, and reward and protect all in a way that benefits an outlet that is reliably on his side, even to the extent of killing negative stories, stories about crimes the president has committed, not just negative stories, right. but stories about crimes. And and that's that's highly troubling. Yep. Um, so, 
Yeah, well, but it's a great story. I really it, recommend everyone take some time with it. It's very illuminating and, and not in necessarily a good way, but in a way of kind of putting no, things no, in no. context and going, oh, my God. Uh, we were at dinner last week. It was our board dinner, and I brought up to you the show, our cartoon president that's on Showtime. I've been telling everybody right. about this because I binge watched it um, during one of my flights to a speech out in Fargo. Um, and it is hysterical. It is a cartoon parody of the, the Trump presidency. But I got to tell you that it, the the, the storylines, the things that they make fun of, it's really closer to reality than you want to admit, especially after this Fox News story, his relationship with Fox and Friends and Hannity and all that. You, everybody, please, you got to watch our cartoon president. You need some levity to get you through this mess. Um, yeah, you got to you got to watch it, Evan. You sold, you sold me. I will. I will. <laughs> it's worth getting Showtime just for that. Um I wanted to touch on this because of your expertise in in foreign affairs and and national security. This story, uh, another example of Trump abusing his power, this story about Trump demanding that Jared Kushner get a security clearance despite the recommendations of the professionals who said no freaking way should this guy have a security clearance given all of his conflicts of interest, his foreign business, uh, who he owns money to, like, no, okay? And Trump was like, I don't care, gave it to him anyway. And he has the power to do that as president. But uh, what did you think when you heard about that? I mean, explain to people why that is actually a really big story. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so much there. But, you know, the, the way I explain it to people is like to say, you know, all of us who drive, okay, we, you know, driving is, is dangerous or can be dangerous. And, you know, you're, you're driving a, you know, a heavy piece of, of uh, a heavy machine that can do enormous damage to, to people and property. And so you have to go get a driver's license. And, and in, through that process, you learn about the rules of the road and learn about different dangers and threats and how you can operate safely in that context. And if you can't do it for whatever reason, uh, then, then you shouldn't be on the road. And, and, that's, and, and that's how we do it. Well, the security clearance is, is similar. You know, it's to ensure that those who have access to highly classified information in many cases uh, are prepared to protect that information and able to protect it. And some people for a variety of reasons just aren't. It just so happens with Jared Kushner that he possesses uh, most of of the the characteristics of someone who you would never give access to, to highly sensitive information. Uh, But he is the son-in-law of the president and an advisor to the president. And as you mentioned, the president gets to decide in the end who has a clearance and who doesn't. And he's made the decision to overrule on Jared's uh, behalf to give him a clearance. But, you know, that's not that's not the end of it. I mean, according to reporting that you know, I've seen from NBC and I think others, you know, career national career security clearance professionals in the White House uh, disapproved of over 30 uh, administration officials who, and in the end, their decisions were overruled yep. and, and those officials in the administration were given clearances. So we're, we're not just talking about Jared Kushner. We're talking about an administration who, an administration that is full of officials who were not, um, were not judged by experts to be worthy of security clearances and to, to be trustworthy of security clearances. But that's just, that's not the end of it. I think with Jared Kushner in particular, we know already that, you know, the Chinese and the Emiratis and the Mexicans and the Israelis, and, and of course the Russians all thought that they could get 
that they could uh, manipulate Kushner given these vulnerabilities that yep. you listed. That's right. And so, but the the reason that they're going after Kushner is not just because he has access to classified information with his security clearance. In fact, that's probably the least of it. The main reason they're going after him, or they they want to go after him, is because of his access to the president president and his presence at a senior level in the White House. So if you're a foreign intelligence officer, what you would most want to obtain is a source within you know, the office and within the circle of trust of a foreign leader, if you're not in control of that foreign leader, him or herself. And so Jared Kushner offers that opportunity for them. And like I said, and like you said, he has all of the vulnerabilities that they would hope to find. I mean, if you're a foreign intel- intelligence officer, you look at Jared Kushner as a once-in-a-career opportunity because of his placement, his access in the White House, and his vulnerabilities. I mean, you just don't see it. I mean, it's you don't see it anywhere else. You rarely see that if at any time in your career. It's the sort of thing that, you know, I, I guarantee you that in intelligence, foreign intelligence agencies and those and probably other countries, intelligence officers, foreign intelligence officers were fighting with their colleagues about who was going to get to target Jared Kushner <laughs> because it's just too juicy of a target. Right, but this right. is exactly why he should not have a clearance. But more importantly, he shouldn't be in the White House. Uh, I've said that from the very beginning, um, him or his wife. OK, Ivanka Trump has absolutely no business being in the White House either. And I would say that Jared Kushner's presence in the White House poses a national security threat. And this was this is a perfect example as to why that is. He's so compromised. But the, the flip side of it is so is the president of the United States. So he wouldn't get a security clearance if he were a, a regular citizen either. And it flows from the top, unfortunately. Um, right. Well, no, right? actually, to the contrary, he'd be investigated. That's right. That's exactly what's happening. Right? Which is what's happening right now. To- <laughs> That's right. And, and just one one other thing on this on this nepotism issue. I just I have to say this, yeah. you know, Go ahead. there's a reason why we have anti nepotism laws. And, and yes, you know, there, there's you know discussion, legal discussion about how far they go. They go and apply to the president. And I understand all that. But but there's a reason why nepotism isn't a good thing for our country. And the reason is, is that it's, especially in a case like this. You know, when when your team is formed through nepotism, hiring your family members, then all the safeguards and the protocols and the, you know, the standards, the ethical standards, they go right out the window because those family ties are stronger than those things yep. uh, to corrupt leaders. And, and that's why it's so important for us not to say, OK, yeah, we're going to accept sort of, you know, ruling families in America. It's just it doesn't serve our interests. It certainly doesn't, which is why those nepotism laws were put in place in the first place after what the Kennedys did. And it's very reminiscent to a mafia. And, um, you know, Donald Trump might fantasize about being a mob boss, but that's not how it works when you're president of the United States. And thank God for um, independent investigations like what's going on with with Bob Mueller. Um, we have, a, you know, a couple minutes left. I, I know you got to run, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about, uh, well, A, what did you think about Michael Cohen's testimony last week? Because it was pretty riveting to watch. Uh, but B, um, I know that Stand Up Republic, we've done we've had some efforts in protecting Bob Mueller. And um, where do you where do you see the investigation going right now? Well, that's a big question. And, you know, it's 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 hard to say. But but I will say the following, and that is that, you know, the special counsel filings that we've seen to date, 
have uh, come right up to the water's edge on a couple of really important issues. One of them is Paul Manafort's provision of targeting data to uh, Konstantin Kalimnik. Yep. Uh, you know, those are that that kind of data is, is really the kind of data that that the that the Russians would have needed to uh, to target their uh, disinformation campaign on social media uh, in an effective way. You know, in a way that could could you know help elect Donald Trump and defeat. Uh, his his opposition. And so, you know, that's an important thing. You know, we, we don't know more about what the special counsel, we don't know a whole lot more about what the special counsel knows about that, but we know that the special counsel knows about that. And we know that the special counsel thinks that's important. Yep. And indeed it is. Now, what more they know about it or what, you know, what laws they, you know, they may or may not think have been violated. I mean, we just don't know. We're waiting to see, but that's something that I'm very interested in, obviously. The other one is all the Cohen WikiLeaks stuff yes. and you Roger know, the Stone. discussions of right Roger Stone and and the discussion in in the uh, you know in, in special counsel filings of a senior administration official being directed to reach out to, to Roger Stone to to learn you know what was the next move or what was happening with WikiLeaks you know one question is who was that senior official. The next question is, well, who ordered the senior official to do that? That's right. Because it would there have weren't to be that many. Senior right. <laughs> right. So so this is it's these these kinds of things. And then also the, the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting yes. where, you know, all of Trump's top campaign officials are in a meeting with Russian agents about, you know, the provision of, of valuable dirt on Hillary Clinton you know, that's another thing. You know, we know, obviously, the special counsel is aware of that. We know they're interested in that. They've asked Donald Trump questions about what he knew about that. Um, but we don't know what else the special counsel knows. And so it's those three things that really get to the heart of a conspiracy between Trump or the Trump organization, the Trump campaign, <clears throat> excuse me, and the Russians that I'm interested to know more about. And, you know, th- there are some things also that I know that are, are not public that I think will help, you know, help the American people under understand more about the, the Trump campaign's um, connections to Russia that I think will become public. And, you know, we'll, we'll learn more as we go here. But those are the things I'm watching. But there, there's more contact between Trump and, and Russia or the Trump campaign in Russia than has yet even been publicly disclosed. So more yep. more will come on that. And uh, the whole attack on the FBI and James Comey and the whole obsession with the dossier and and going after and saying the abuse of the FISA warrants, all of that is a distraction because these Republicans know they don't they cannot defend all of the other nefarious activity that went on between Trump, the campaign and the Russians. So instead, they're trying to undermine the messengers, which I think is pretty despicable since they seem to have no intellectual curiosity about the potential crimes the president of the United States may have engaged in with a foreign adversary. It's it just blows my mind. Um, so in our, in right. our right. And, and- yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And Tara, I would say, I mean, as a matter of self-preservation, in the long term, at least, these Republicans really should think about what defending Trump uh, in this context will do to the party. And that's the thing. I mean, it's it's not just, uh, you know, partisan interest now. It's not just party first. These members of Congress who, who show for the president and protect him and show no, absolute no interest in pursuing the truth and uh, upholding the rule of law in America, 
you know, they're looking out for their own interests. They're looking out for their own reelection. They're not even thinking about the interests of the Republican Party. I mean, just think about this. Look, the, there's plenty for the, the Democrats in, in the House and Senate to investigate justifiably. Mm-hmm. And they could be busy with this for for years, at least the next two years, especially yep. as long as Trump is still in office. And that is going to create a, a compelling meta narrative for Democrats to run on across the country and not just for federal office and not just for the presidency, not just for Congress, but also for state offices. I know the Democrats are very highly interested in taking back some legislatures. I mean, Republicans have been very effective in mm-hmm. uh, gaining control of most state legislatures across the country. Democrats want to, you know, gain some back themselves. And, you know, this narrative of Trump's criminality, which he is he's proven to deserve at this point, uh, and then the Republicans in Congress and other Republicans defending them, uh, defending him is, is going to allow Democrats to paint the whole party with the same brush that Trump deserves to be painted with. And, and they will deserve it. And, and that's going to do that's going to harm Republican electoral prospects for for the next couple of years, at least, if not probably well beyond that. And so I would just urge those Republicans to at least put the party's long-term interests ahead of, of anything else. And, you know, don't keep defending Trump when, and, and attacking the rule of law and our law enforcement. Uh, it's going to hurt the party. And in the end, it's going to hurt them personally too, I think. And the country. Um, yeah, well, no doubt about that. <laughs> Which is a good transition yeah. into into but, our. But, but it, that doesn't seem to matter. I know. It doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't. It's it's yeah. all about political expediency right. right now. They're 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 like they have blinders on. It's it's insane. Which leads me to uh, stand up Republic and your your efforts with Mindy Finn, and um, and what Stand Up Republic is doing. Uh, what are what are some of the right. what are some of the. Um, the big issues that that we're working on that people would be interested in if yeah. they want to get involved, they should or pay attention to what we're doing. And then, you know, what's next for Evan McMullen? You already ran for president. Um, are you going to run for Senate or Congress or something out there in Utah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'll answer the other questions first. I mean, we're re- very excited about Stand Up Republic and what we're doing. I mean, at, at the most basic level, Stand Up Republic unifies Republicans and independents and Democrats around our foundational values and institutions that protect uh, liberty and justice in America. And, and we're so excited about that. We have, you know, Republicans who are, are standing up uh, for these things, as, as standing with Democrats and independents in this effort. And, and that's what Stand Up Republic is, is all about. And, and we welcome everyone to that fight. It's not a fight that should be partisan. It's a fight that we should all be committed to. We must, in order to be successful, you know, no matter what our party affiliations are, we've got to be committed to our values. We've got to be committed to liberty, equality, to truth. These things are essential, no matter what your political ideas uh, are, as long as they're consistent with sort of what it means to be consistent with, you know, the idea of America. Um, so that's what we're doing. I mean, in the very near term, we're, we're very much focused on protecting Mueller. Um, we're advocating for also right now at this very moment, we're uh, advocating for uh, Congress to, to stand up to the president on his false emergency declaration yes. and, and encourage all members of Congress, no matter what your party affiliation is, to, to vote uh, in favor of this bill that passed the House and will now go to the Senate. 
that would block the, the president's emergency declaration. That's very important. Looking forward over the next two years, we're going to be involved in some uh, electoral reform efforts, which are intended to make sure that, that um, you know, leaders are incentivized to offer more unifying and effective leadership. So some of that means you know, uh, you know, establishing independent commissions or some sort of gerrymandering reform in the states across the country. Um, we're also uh, we also think it should be easier for people to vote, not more difficult. That's so right. We want to make sure that eligible voters uh, have a chance to vote. And there are a lot of efforts now on the Republican side in North Carolina and elsewhere to impede people from voting and to just and to, to meddle with the actual votes and elections. And we've got to stand up to that. And we are. And then, you know, there's uh, there's another thing that, you know, just passed in Maine recently and that was used in their recent congressional elections, uh, which is called ranked choice voting, which simply means that when you go to the ballot box, instead of just choosing one person, you get to rank your preferences. So you get mm. to more fully um, say who you support. Mm-hmm. And 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 the effect of that is is to then inspire more unifying leadership. It means that everybody running for office should come talk to you, not just the person who is of the same party, but, you know, maybe, you know, a Democrat, you know, comes to a Republican and tries to win their second vote at least, or a libertarian gets in there and, and tries to do that. And, That's and what that can do is, yeah. is unify us more. Yep. So um, are, are we going to see Evan McMullen on a ballot again in the future? I yeah, hope so. I, you know, I, I think I, I appreciate that. I, I will pursue public office again, most likely. I, I don't think now, now at this particular moment is, is yeah. not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm committed to stand up for public and to building our national grassroots network. We were organized. We have members in every state and, and, uh, and state organizations in half of, of the states. And uh, we're growing from there. And, and we're very committed to that, Mindy and I. And, we're going to keep working on that for the near term. Um, but, but eventually, yes, I think I will pers- most likely pursue public office again. Well, and, and I, I'm not sure what that office will be. <laughs> it won't, it won't be, it won't be the president. <laughs> well, I, uh, I appreciated your effort and it gave me an opportunity to cast a vote that I could sleep at night casting. And it gave me an opportunity to get to know you and to work with you guys and do my part on trying to fix this mess uh, for, for the future of this country. And um, I begin every, every episode of my podcast with an Orwell quote that, that says in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act and I consider people like you right and I consider people like you uh, as battle buddies in that revolution and uh, I'm I'm proud to sit on the board with uh, with your organization and Stand Up Republic is doing great work and uh, like you I do hope to run for office one day just not right now Um, we've got work to do right now but (laughs) I know I know but likewise but there will come a time where well maybe we'll be serving to serving together in another capacity Evan McMullen thank you so much uh thank you and uh keep up the great work thank you you too tara so happy to be working with you and we appreciate all you're doing and you know with stand-up republic and then just more generally i mean you you've been uh just so reliable in speaking truth since all of this started and it's just so important people have to hear your voice and and understand that they're not alone and people who understand and feel that you know, what's happening isn't right, but, you know, they may not know how to articulate it themselves or they may not have a platform themselves to to speak as broadly and loudly as 
as you can and I can and others who who have a uh, you know the, uh, a way to do that. Um, but you give voice to them, and it's just ab- so absolutely critical. And and I can't thank you for that enough. Uh, you're very kind. I appreciate that. And I just simply say to people, I'm just being honest. <laughs> thank you, Evan. <laughs> it's a big deal now. Yeah, Thanks, apparently. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Well, I'm pleased to have uh, AEI scholar, political economist, Nick Eberstadt with me to talk a little North Korea, a little China, um, maybe a, a little domestic policy. We'll see how it goes. But given what happened with the president in Hanoi last week and the ongoing negotiations with the China trade talks, I just thought Nick was the perfect person to have on for honestly speaking this week. So big welcome. Thank you so much, Nick, for taking time out to chat with me. Hey, well, thanks for inviting me, Darren. I just think your voice is important because we oftentimes uh, there's just so much chaos going on on the domestic front. Uh, foreign po- foreign policy often gets put by the wayside and people don't realize how much influence the president has directly on foreign policy. There aren't as many checks and balances. So I wanted to give some time to that. And uh, given that the North Korea summit was so high profile last week and really nothing came out of it. But I wanted to get your take on what exactly happened in Hanoi. Well, um, we know what didn't happen. We know that they didn't come up with a handshake, a smile together, and a signed piece of paper. So the question is why, since both sides seem to be heading there uh, to accomplish something like that. Um, We still have to do a little bit of Kremlinology on this, and there's a bit of he said, she said. But it looks to me as if the deal the U.S. side thought they were coming to uh, to ink there was not what the North Korean side wanted. From my standpoint, what the U.S. was willing to give North Korea is way too much. From my standpoint, I would have said it looked like America was preparing for a bad deal, but the North Korean side seemed to have wanted a very bad deal from American interests. And our guys weren't okay with that. At the last moment, the North Korean side seemed to have upped the ante. Uh, Going into uh, into the summit, both sides were okay with establishing liaison offices. Both sides seemed to have been okay with a uh, so-called peace declaration with a little bit of sanctions relief for a little bit of so-called denuclearization. But it looks like at the last moment, the North Korean side pressed very hard for almost total, maybe not 100% total, but for almost total sanctions relief in return for a tiny little bit or a little bit of denuclearization. And the U.S. side was not willing to agree to that. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, When people say denuclearization, uh, a lot of times there is a discrepancy about what that means, what we define as denuclearization and what the North Koreans define as denuclearization are very different, correct? You were very discerning to point that out because there were people in our State Department who didn't figure that out until (laughs) after the Singapore summit last year. So. When, when you and I talk about uh, denuclearization of North Korea, what we mean is denuclearization of North Korea. When the Pyongyang government talks about denuclearization, their formulation is the denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. 
Now, how, you may ask, can South Korea, which has no nuclear weapons, denuclearize? And the North Korean side will answer, well, you have a military treaty ally, the U.S. of A., which is a big nuclear power. And as long as you have a military alliance with a nuclear power, you're nuclearized. So we're not going to talk about denuclearization of the peninsula until you get rid of your alliance with America, get the American troops out, get the U.S. nuclear guarantee that's protecting you off of of the, uh, the airspace. And then after that, we're okay to talk about denuclearization. If uh, if the uh, United States wants us, North Korea, to have 10 nuclear weapons, well, then, North, then the United States should have 10 nuclear weapons, too. It's arms control. Mm-hmm. But you can see from that, it's an entirely different discussion right. uh, from what we think we're uh, getting into when we talk about ending the North Korean nuclear problem. And that's been a, a source of contention for a long time, uh, as over the last 20 years when we've tried to talk to them. Um, you can't even get past that part. <laughs> and it seems to exactly. still. And exactly. That, yeah, it's a non-starter. no intention to denuclearize. Right. Because I mean, it's their default. It's the way they, they keep their regime. They feel as though they need to have it for their mere existence exactly. in that in that region. Um, that which leads me to South Korea and what's going on there. Uh, yep. South Korea now seems to have a government that's a little bit more amenable to relationships with North Korea. And... Um, we have a strategic alliance with them militarily where we do we conduct exercises. We have troops in the demilitarized zone, tens of thousands of them. Uh, Donald Trump has decided that apparently we don't need to do those exercises anymore. Does that matter? Is he right? He called them war games well, last year. Yeah, he called them. <laughs> he called them war games, and he called them war games at the Singapore uh, right. uh, summit. Using the language kind of, of the North Koreans, by the way, that's the that language the that North they Koreans use. use. And he also said they are very expensive. Um, you know, I mean, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. Right. Um, but the, but uh, it's, it kind of raises the question, uh, if we have uh, 28,000 American troops uh, defending South Korea there, don't you want them to be well prepared? Uh, can they just uh, can they just sit around playing cards until uh, you know the uh, the red balloon goes up? Or just uh, they could just sit around and watch Fox News all day the way the president does. He doesn't understand what preparation actually means. Maybe that's what they should do. The, 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 the thing that the thing that I don't get is if we're going to have troops there, if we're going to have an alliance, the reason for the alliance is to reduce threats. And I would think that well trained. Uh, well-trained forces that are coordinated would be a better deterrent than troops that aren't well-trained. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why uh, why we think that having an alliance there but not well-trained is better than having an alliance there that's well-trained. It, it doesn't make sense to me. But isn't this consistent with uh, the concessions that Trump has continued to make? He's changed his rhetoric now. Apparently, he's him and uh, Kim Jong-un have a love affair. Uh, you know, he went from rocket man to what a wonderful guy. He's a great leader. We're in love. You wrote me beautiful letters. And it's just part of the um, odd concessions and, and relationship that Trump seems to be uh, imbuing with, with, uh, with Kim Jong-un. It's, he's trying to shower him with flattery, thinking that that's going to work because that's what works for Trump. But 
one of those concessions, again, being the pullback of these exercises, something that the North Koreans want. Um, the other aspect is is just this complete and utter disregard for North Korea's human gross human rights violations. It is one of the most oppressive regimes in the world, if not the most oppressive oppressive regime in the world. And they murdered an American student, Otto Warmbier. A lot of people know that name. It was a, uh, I mean, his, his trial, we saw clips from it where he was arrested for allegedly stealing a, a, a political poster while he was there. And they sentenced him to years in, in, in a prison camp there. And we saw the horrible images of him begging for basically for forgiveness and for his freedom. And he didn't get it. Next thing you know, he comes back during the Trump administration in a coma, clearly tortured, um, and he died a couple days later after he came back to the U.S. Donald Trump will not acknowledge that Kim Jong-un was aware of that, which I think was one of the biggest gross missteps of this summit. I think people can agree, as you said earlier, that walking away from a bad deal was not such a, not such a bad idea. We'd rather have him walk away than have a bad deal. But he, it was overshadowed, in my opinion, by the egregious comments by the president, once again, siding with a dictator, saying he believed that he didn't know anything about it over our intelligence community. What are your thoughts on that? Well, well number one, I'm, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm a founding member of the U.S. Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. So I think human rights in North Korea matter sure. a lot. Uh, number two, um, I think it was a mistake at both summits to keep human rights off the table. Uh, the North Korean side, uh, of course, would say, we're going to walk if you talk about human rights. Why are they so sensitive about it? Because they're not entirely isolated. They can Google the Nuremberg trials just as well as you know we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and number three, um, there's no doubt that poor young man was tortured ultimately to death by the North Korean regime. Probably he was tortured uh, almost to death that way because he was resisting whatever they wanted him to do for their propaganda purposes. He's actually not just a victim. He is a heroic young man. That's why he was tortured uh, like that. Uh, They're not perfect torturers, so they make mistakes every so often. Um, It was a it was an awful mistake for President Trump to utter those words. I'll have to take Kim Jong Un at his word. That was a um, that was an unforced error. He did not have to say that he could have left things. uh, uh, He could have left what he'd said up to that point without making a terrible error. And that's I'm afraid you know, that's a shame for all of us. That's also a pattern. He said the same thing about Saudi Arabia and and Jamal Khashoggi. He said the same thing about Putin and health at Helsinki. So clearly he, you know, the, the president of the United States lacks empathy and that carries over to his foreign policy and diplomacy. And I just, it's just so infuriating. I, my heart goes out to the warm beer family because the president yeah. used them as props at, at a state of the union, <clears throat> excuse me, state of the union address last year. And something that was very heartfelt. He actually said all the right things at that point. There was also a yes, North Korean defector uh, that had a, 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 an amazing story as well. And we, I was thought, OK, all right, you know, maybe we're on the right track here. And then he turns around and does this. It, it's, it's just it's hard to explain. 
Well, you know, it's um, you, you have to wonder if uh, the president understands the importance of declaratory policy. Because what the president of the United States, what the leader of the free world says in public matters. Right. It, it becomes part of the logic for a free society's uh, engagement with the outside world. It's not the same thing as, you know, making a deal in Atlantic City with uh, some, you know, Mobsters. Contractors or, you know, <laughs> what, whatever, whatever. Uh, because you can always take whatever you say back and that. Right. But everything is forever when you're the president of the United States. Everything is always for the, you know, everything that is on the record is there forever and you can never take it back. So, I mean, declaratory policy matters when you're the head of the free world. And I think that that's why uh, over the weekend we saw both the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, John Bolton and Secretary Pompeo, struggle with answering the questions uh, about why the president would not um, assign blame to Kim Jong-un over the Otto Warmbier incident when it was just so obvious. Everyone knows. And uh, John Bolton on the Sunday shows, he struggled, you know, Uh, Pompeo had a very contentious interview with USA Today where he was challenged on this and Mm -hmm. uh, where they would say, well, the North Korean regime. Do you think that this level of um, this type of flattery and this this is that that that's a a diplomatic tactic that works? Like, do you think that this is folly or do you think that there's any merit to what they're trying to do here? Because I know Bolton and Pompeo both both know damn well that Kim Jong-un knew about this and you could see them struggle with it to the point where even Pompeo was visibly angry at USA Today about the line of questioning. Um, From my standpoint, uh, I have never believed it would be possible to get to a, um, a mutually agreeable diplomatic settlement of the North Korean nuclear crisis because the North Korean regime is a revisionist state that doesn't believe in abiding by deals at any point where they see them as being disadvantageous and denuclearizing is big league disadvantageous for the North Korean regime. So mm-hmm. I don't see I don't see how we're going to get what we think we want to out of negotiations with North Korea. But that's me. So right. let's say let's say I did think it was possible. The only way that I can imagine that being possible is if you have the top uh, person on the U.S. side talk with the supreme living God on the North Korean side. (laughs) It'll never be settled by the uh, diplomats at lower levels because they're all just um, one-way transmitters for the guy at the top. Right. So if if it were ever possible to get an agreement, it would have to be with the guy at the top on the North Korean side. So you were okay. So were you okay then when Trump decided to have the uh, bilateral talks? Because we hadn't done Um, that in, I don't think ever, right? No, we'd never done that. In in my own opinion, we were woefully unprepared for that. Right. Uh, We, we didn't, we didn't have uh, we didn't have, in my view, a plan for what we should really want to get out of the uh, out of the meetings. We didn't have a plan for what to do if we didn't get 
what we needed out of the meetings. For we didn't have a plan for what to do if there if we did not achieve our objectives. And when we got to uh, Singapore, we ended up with a joint statement that looked almost as if it could have been drafted by the North Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. We didn't. We, we lost a lot of face. We gave legitimacy to a monster from right. that country. That's right. We didn't. We didn't give away too much else on the negotiating table, but to the extent that anything was up for grabs at that meeting, it was just like a skirmish. But uh, at that skirmish, the North Korean side got the better of us on just about everything. Right, because there's a lot of currency um, on the global stage when the president of the United States gives legitimacy to a repressive regime like that. And it's hard, you know, you can't really quantify that. It's it's priceless, you know, and that's exactly what we did. On top of the, you know, the the movie trailer, Hollywood's produced uh, video that That they, they, I mean, it was very strange. And so, which kind of leads me to the other part. Um, the, President Trump seems to focus on the potential economic prosperity that could come to North Korea. He he seems obsessed yeah. with this part of it. Uh, yep. Do you, do you think that that's even a possible negotiating tactic? Is is that going to work, or do you think that again that's just the North Koreans because they're master manipulators, so they have mm-hmm. Trump's number? You think it's just we failed so many times negotiating with them? Some people are like, well, we might as well try something different, or do you think this is just making similar mistakes and they're just kind of waiting us? out because they know that they're strategically more patient than than we have been in the past and they're just going to continue on with their program if they don't feel as though they're having enough pressure to stop it well they certainly have a strategy and it's hardly clear that we have a strategy and even when a weak actor comes to the table with a strategy they can sometimes outclass a strong actor who doesn't have a strategy. I mean, that's been the story of the North Korean crisis for 25 years. Mm-hmm. North Korea started as a poor, isolated little country in Asia without nuclear weapons, and now it's a poor, isolated little country in Asia with nuclear weapons. And that's a diplomatic triumph of a certain sort. Um, I would have said that this... Um, Destiny Productions video and the strategic choice we're trying to get North Korea to make about economic modernization, I would have described that as a new uh, mistake that we're making, mm. uh, but definitely a mistake. Um, our, uh, we have convinced ourselves that it's in the North Korean government's interest to modernize and relinquish nuclear weapons. Uh, we haven't convinced the North Koreans <laughs> that right. it's in their interest to modernize and relinquish nuclear weapons. All indications that I can see are that the North Korean side thinks it can have its cake and eat it too. They've got an entire approach to economic development now under Kim Jong-un, which is an innovation uh, he came up with, which they call Byungjin, which means kind of simultaneous pursuit of military and economic modernization. And the way that works is they use some of the profits from the marketization, the limited marketization of their economy, and plow those right into more nuclear and missile development. So the more economic development North Korea enjoys, the faster it gets together the arsenal and long-range missiles to threaten our country. Well, that's, um, that we sounds... Haven't... Go ahead. I'm sorry, we, we, we haven't convinced them to make the choice. They think they can have both. Well, and they will say, by the way, we'd love, to, uh, we'd love to go down your path, 
but we need you to get rid of all of your sanctions, and then we can become a modern denuclear country. And of course, they won't. And that sounds uh, eerily reminiscent to their benefactors, which is China. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, China is uh, propping North Korea up. I'm assuming China, also Russia, uh, there has to, you know, wh- how how is it if if North Korea was so heavily sanctioned? A, how do, were they able to get the nuclear technology? And B, why is it that they're still able to function? Obviously, there's people that are breaking these sanctions and allowing them to function and, and continue to do business with them. So, who are those bad actors? I'm assuming it's China and Russia, but correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I, I don't, I don't think I can correct you. Well, <laughs> good. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And your and your point is validated by um, the news reports about this unpublished new UN panel of experts report, which says that the uh, that Chinese and Russian actors in particular are violating the sanctions and in the ship to ship transfers and in other things to try to weaken the sanctions. And of course, that helps the North Korean war economy in addition to everything else. Uh, the, we, we, don't, we don't know as much as we should or need to about the North Korean um, weapons program. But given what has come out about the Iranian weapons program and this help they got from other countries and from scientists from other countries, I suspect that if we ever get the Pyongyang archives on this thing, we're going to be shocked by Mm. how much outside help the North Koreans had in this uh, multi-decade project they've been underway with. So that leads me to my next question about North Korea, and then uh, I want to talk just a little China while I in the, in the last couple minutes. So, ex- what exactly do we know about North Korea's capabilities? Um, the IAEA claims that um, their their facility, one of their facilities, is old and deteriorating, so that's limiting their their um, abilities. But we also don't have inspectors we haven't in a long time there's really not a lot of intelligence on the ground so is north korea really a threat do they have ballistic missiles that can reach the u.s do they have uh you know anything more than just bombs that they can detonate underground you know what what exactly do we know about their capabilities at this point well well please understand that i have no security clearances so i'm a newspaper reader sure from a newspaper reader's vantage point um we know that they tested a uh, long-range intercontinental ballistic missile before they went into this peace offensive of no tests in 2018, lasting to right now. Um, likewise, we know that they um, tested a thermonuclear, which is to say a hydrogen device, uh, before they went on this seeming peace uh, offensive. By the way, they're, they, they, they tell us that they're manufacturing, mass-producing nukes and missiles all the while during this <laughs> quiet period. Right. Um, we also know that the North Korean government, more than any other government, makes its living off of strategic deception. So back in uh, 2002, under George W. Bush, uh, we found out that there was an additional nuclear uh, development program we hadn't heard about with uranium that uh, had been very well concealed. Um, We have to assume there are multiple facilities and programs that are concealed from the outside world. 
and not just the big uh, look at me, not over there facility at Yongbyon that we talk about right. all the time. Right. Um, depending upon which specialist one talks to, one hears the surmise that the DPRK has from half a dozen nuclear weapons to dozens of nuclear weapons. The real trick, of course, for our homeland security comes at the point where they marry, uh, where they solve the physics and engineering problem of marrying a nuclear device to an intercontinental ballistic missile. Right, getting it here. And I can't tell you how close they are to that or whether they've already fixed that, but we know for a I think we can take it to the bank that they're quietly working on building a larger and larger arsenal to be able to take the crisis to the next stage when they get out of making nice with us. And and, and it seems to be that Donald Trump only cares about the optics of no testing or no missile testing, um, not necessarily the substance of whether they're still working on their program or not, because he, he counts on the fact that most Americans are not following this closely. So it's all a facade, and he keeps focusing in on that. Meanwhile, we have our experts and our folks in the in Defense Department and the State Department really trying to solve this problem because they're, they're a nuisance on so many levels and they do pose a threat. Um, and it, it just seems as though we're at an impasse again. Uh, what do you see is, is next here? Uh, what's the next, the next move for the United States? To your satisfaction, what would you like to, to say? To my satisfaction. Yeah. I thought it was really revealing at Hanoi that the North Korean side sprung this trap at the last moment dismantle all of the sanctions from the Trump administration era time at the UN and, you know, from the Treasury Department. Um, The reason they sprung it at the last moment is they didn't want to give a hint about this to the working groups. I think maybe the reason they didn't want to bring it up at the working groups is because this would have revealed a vulnerability. It makes me think that the sanctions, leaky as they are, may be seriously hurting the North mm-hmm. Korean war economy. They, yep. may ha- they may be spending down their reserves faster than we think. They'll, everything will look normal until suddenly it doesn't. Right. And as long as we can keep economic penalties and pressure on the war economy in North Korea, we stand a chance of protecting the U.S. homeland. But there's much more we should be doing internationally. I mean, diplomatically with other countries, uh, the human rights element. I mean, that's uh, we don't want to instrumentalize human rights, but this is the biggest human rights nightmare in the world today. Right. Uh, there are many other things that we could be doing. And if it happens that we can get a verifiable uh, agreement from North Korea to denuclearize in toto, that would, by the way, require an an honest inventory of all their facilities and many other things first, Um, then by all means, go ahead with that. But didn't Trump Trump back away? But didn't Trump back away from that before the summit about uh, a complete verifiable uh, ver- verifiable uh, the accounting has changed. Okay. The language is so now they're talking about a final full instead of a. Okay. Uh, a, yeah. So, um, it, it would take it would take a complete reversal of the viewpoint of three generations of Kim 
for the government of North Korea willingly to uh, denuclearize. Uh, but sometimes these things do happen. Look at what happened with uh, Gorbachev at the end of the Soviet era. It, True. I would not put a lot of hope in it, but it, I wouldn't say it's completely impossible. Well, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do anything to reduce our own preparations for our own safety. And we can go ahead and implement a threat reduction program against North Korea that doesn't require permission from North Korean diplomats to meet us at any negotiating table. We can do this ourselves without right. their help. And I guess basically continue the maximum pressure campaign because mm-hmm. that that's what brought them to the table in the first place. So let's not take our our foot off their necks in that respect. Um, and even if they don't agree with us, right. we can we can erode the power of their defense economy so that it becomes less of a threat in the future, less killing power. Right. And we can do that without their help. We can do that by ourselves. Absolutely. And that leads me to China uh, in our in our closing minutes here. Um, mm-hmm. Like. Like I said earlier, China, China's role in this is important. Um, and and they are, you know, during the six party talks and everything, China was always a, a, an important player in, mm-hmm. in, in all of this. Yep. Um, but now under Xi Jinping, we have a, a very interesting dynamic going on with China. So not only is you have the whole North Korea mess, we have our own trade mess going on with China yep. with tariffs and, and this back and forth yep. with the president. Where are we? A, how badly is this hurting uh, our our country? And B, where are we with the talks? What do we need to see on our end to get a good deal with China? Uh, well, well, as regards as regards North Korea and the and the trade talks, and I'll start with that. Um, we we have a sort of a blunderbuss approach to uh, you know to tariffs with China uh, that is probably not as effective as if we used our little laser gun and zapped particular violating businesses like uh, ZTE, you may mm-hmm. recall last year, one of the Chinese businesses that was, uh, was uh, caught uh, violating sanctions. Um, we, have, we have sufficient uh, power with our secondary uh, financial sanctions through the Treasury Department to be able more or less to put out of business uh, international concerns in China that have significant um, uh, sales or transactions in dollar-denominated currency. If they can't use the dollar zone, they're not really going to be able to survive. Um, It was a mistake, in my view, for us to allow ZTE to survive ZTE paid a big financial penalty. This was on the basis of an intervention from Xi Jinping to talk with President Trump and to save, Mm -hmm. so to speak, the life of that business. That was very Um, fishy. We have... We have much more. We have much more influence than we uh, seem to appreciate in the judicious use of specific um, secondary financial sanctions against particular enterprises, rather than big blunderbuss, you know, cross uh, sectoral tariffs, which. Um, I, I, they certainly will hurt Chinese businesses, but they also will have repercussions for 
consumers in the United States because costs get carried on. That's right. And also in our with with those tariffs, say a lot of people don't realize it's hurting our farmers, our soybean producers out there in Iowa, uh, steel producers. They I don't know what Trump's problem is. He's had a bee in his bonnet about tariffs on certain industries for 30 years. He is the most economically ignorant person. Um, to be a billionaire that I that I can think of, it's just it's nonsensical to me. And um, we're now caught in in the middle of this. The country now. I mean, he could he could be economically ignorant and bankrupt his businesses as many times as he wants to when it doesn't affect you know the country. But now the, he can't just file bankruptcy for you know with the United States if he makes if he makes a mistake here at this level. Um, do you see do you see a good deal potentially on the table here to get us out of this quagmire with China or do you think that um, they're just going to drag this out like what's going to be the breaking point for us to get a good deal well well my my guess would be that both sides will want to back away from a global trade war mm-hmm. because we we know that we know what happens with global trade wars they uh, they they don't end well for everybody right um, the that's what led to the great depression can, a lot of people don't exactly, realize that exactly exactly um, one of the things which has been revealed and I don't know if this is inadvertently or on the basis of our strategy but the the weakness of the Chinese economy has been revealed in these uh, you know, uh, trade confrontation uh, discussions, and probably the United States has more leverage in this situation than the Chinese economy has. Which is not to say that American consumers and producers don't get hurt in a trade war. We know how trade wars work. Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that if everybody uh, behaves as sort of rational actors, we will um, uh, we'll have something that uh, will be you know, more or less a settlement in, uh, in the period ahead of us. What that won't deal with, which is very important, is the whole question of Chinese theft of technology and intellectual property. Right. And that's um, that, that's not uh, a problem. trade discussion. That's like that's criminal theft. Yes. And we have to pursue that very, very aggressively because there's no, uh, you know, there's no place that that should be accepted in fair and open uh, trading organizations, trading uh, arrangements. Well, when I worked in Capitol Hill, uh, my old boss was very uh, was a huge advocate for patent reform and protection of mm-hmm. intellectual property. So I, I know a lot more about IP um, law mm-hmm. than I ever thought I would, and I had no idea <laughs> how um, how egregious China is with stealing everything from us. Yeah, it's unbelievable from things from the fashion industry all the way up to military and satellite communications yes. things. It's it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you're right. That is an area that's another facet of it. I mean, our relationship with China is very complicated in a lot of ways. They are not a friend of ours, but we have to deal with them because of the economics of things. Um, The military aspect is uncompromising without doing trade war. That's right. We should be absolutely uncompromising with that because there are criminal penalties uh, that go into effect for criminal activity like that. And this administration already failed that first test with Trump's response to ZTE. That would have been a perfect example of where they could have, would have. put the, you know, dropped the hammer it would have been on a them. Beautiful taste. It would have been a perfect test case for yep. that. And it would yep. have been a perfect 
signal for everything else. Right. But yet they fell short. Um, well, I, I'm we, we're going to have to talk again, Nick. I have to have you back because you're so smart. Love and um, you also, to, you know, for my listeners sake, uh, I, I am also a, uh, a leadership network alum over at the American Enterprise Institute where Nick is a scholar. I uh, absolutely adore what AEI does. They're one of the smartest think tanks out Love there with are. amazing scholars. And you gave a presentation on the epidemic of unemployment facing this country. It's called Men Without Work. And you wrote a book about this and did unbelievable, amazing research on how the opioid, you're welcome, it's well-deserved, about how the opioid um, epidemic and, and, and felony convictions are hurting so many men in this country and their ability to, to work and the way that that affects uh, our our country and the the residual effects of that. Um, I, I I would love to talk to you about. If you want to just give a a, a minute or two about that, since I tease it already, uh, that would be great. And then I'll have you back and talk about I, it more. I'll just I'll just give the give the elevator version. Yes. If we look at the if we look at the latest monthly Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs report, uh, you know, for last month, it reports a work rate, an employment to population ratio for American men, 25 to 54 years of age, the so-called prime working age group, that is lower now, right now is lower than it was in the USA in the 1940 census. And the 1940 census was asking people about their job condition the previous year in 1939, the Great Depression. Depression, right. So our our working uh, age male employment problem is Great Depression scale right now. And it's invisible. We aren't paying attention to it. It's hiding in plain sight. And that was, uh, I was floored when uh, sitting there listening to your presentation on this, because you're right. It's not something people talk about. And the factors that contribute to it are pretty um, uh, eye-opening. And so uh, I encourage people to to look it up. I'll have you back. We can talk about some domestic policy next time around. But Nick Eberstadt, AEI political economist and scholar, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me on Honestly Speaking today. Thank you for inviting me, Tara. It was a lot of fun for me. Thanks so much, Nick. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. Donald Trump's talking about them. We hear about them in the news all the time. It's all over the place. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard me right, the Mennonites. Now, 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people, but there is one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Wednesdays, 10, 9 Central, WGN America, the new TV series, Pure. It's based on true events of the Mennonite mob. Now, the show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. Unfortunately, he finds himself in a way in way, way over his head. And the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things, all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. So get hooked on Pure. Wednesdays, 10, 9 Central, only on WGN America. WG in America is available on Direct TV channel 307 or Dish channel 239 or check your local cable listings for the channel in your 
area. That's pure on WGN America. Big thank you to my two guests this week, Evan McMullen and Nick Eberstadt. They really had great conversations. I so appreciate them. So thank you for listening. You can follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara is the podcast Twitter feed. Also on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Please tweet me, send me messages. Also on Facebook, I'm going to start doing some more Facebook lives on my Tara Setmayer public page. So you can look for those as well. There'll there'll be supplements to the podcast. So um, if you want to ask me questions or uh, make comments about the podcast, please do. And oh, before I go, I have to address this. (laughs) I forgot to when I was talking about the, the hearings with Michael Cohen, I was just so irritated with how Republicans acted. I forgot to bring up the Lynn Patton thing. Who is Lynn Patton? Lynn Patton was the black woman that Mark Meadows stood up like she was on a slave block somewhere on an auction to say that. So she, you know, we have a black woman here who claims Donald Trump isn't racist because she's worked with him for years to counter Michael Cohen claiming Trump was a racist. I almost fell off my chair when I saw that. I was like, are you kidding me? And it created a huge controversy. I don't know how I forgot that. A, A huge controversy. And I was very, um, very straightforward, as I always am, about this on CNN last week. And it made made headlines on Mediaite and other places. And um, where I was like, um, Lynn Patton is an official at HUD. She's in a pretty powerful position over there. She oversees the housing um, programs for New York and New Jersey. Very powerful position. What experience does she have doing this? Zero zip zero. Who was she before? She was a personal assistant to Eric Trump and then the other Trump kids. And then she was his wedding planner. She helped plan his fucking wedding. Okay. That's who this woman is. And we're supposed to believe that she, that she represents all of black people who have been insulted and in, by Donald Trump over the years and years of racist shit that he's done. She's supposed to stand up and Mark Meadows thought that was a good idea to trot out her as a prop and she thought that it was fine. Well, of course she did because she's an attention seeker and she loves the attention. She, she was tweeting it out on, on social media or on Facebook or wherever on social media previewing that she was going to do this. And, and also we found out, and I wish I had known this when I was on air. Um, but we just found out a couple days ago that she sent a letter to HUD ethics lawyers asking them, what kind of outside money can she make while she's employed by the government? And can she uh, participate in a reality show television, a reality TV show? Well, surprise, surprise. They told her no, thankfully, but just the fact that she would attempt to do this while she's employed by the government. She was given a total um, gimme job because she was uh, friends with the Trump family. She was their gopher personal assistant wedding planner. And um, so my, my clip of saying that made Fox News again. A couple months ago, I was all over Fox News for five days because I called uh, to Kanye West a token, which he was. And so this time around, I called Lynn Patton a damn token because that's exactly how she was used. And I don't apologize for that. So she was on Laura Ingram's show and they showed a clip of me calling her the wedding planner and saying she had no business being in the position she's in and she looked like a damn fool at the at the hearing. 
So she tried to call me a glorified, I think what she say? I was a glorified blogger. Never use my name though. And that um, a fake journalist or some, some shit like that. Well, I'd like to know where that blog is because I, I don't, I'm not a blogger. So honey, if you're going to come for me, at least have accurate information. But do you really want to go there? While I, my resume speaks for itself. And I tweeted at this and I said, look, um, while you were planning Eric Trump's wedding, I was already 20 years in fighting on the front lines of conservatism with a provable record, provable resume, and I didn't have never inflated my credentials like she did. So let's not really go there, honey. Okay. So that's that. <laughs> so for those who were wondering, that's what happened. And I just find it all quite funny because these Trump people, they're all a bunch of grifters, attention seekers. Ay, it's a circus. Anyway, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Thank you again. Follow me on social media and I'll be back next week. To, who knows what's going to happen in this next seven days? <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye.